0: Welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What a podcast episode we have for you guys here today. We have NHL agent Al Waugh, who's the president and CEO of the Wa Sports Group, uh, on the podcast. And Al helps manage players in the NHL. And uh, a few of the notable names that he has on his client list is uh, Nico Heischer, who was the first overall pick in the NHL draft a couple years ago. And uh, Ben Bishop, who actually just uh, got called upon as uh, um, a finalist for the Vesna for this year. So pretty awesome clients that he has. Uh, Al grew up in the beautiful province of New Brunswick, where he fell in love with the game, playing goalie. Uh, When he got older, he attended Choate for prep school before going on to Harvard. (coughs) (coughs) Brutal. Um, Where he actually won a national championship as a uh, as a freshman in net in 1989 so that's actually pretty cool uh, but Al also played and won a silver medal in the 94 Olympics for Team Canada uh, and after his playing career became a certified player agent and now as I said he's the president of WA Sports Group we're really excited to have him on the podcast but before we do get to Al let's bring on the talent of the podcast episode Jeff Levecchio Jeff what's going on
1: today Tof, I'm I'm watching you here, and it looked like that was a fake choke. W- was that fake? What what choke are you talking about? The the choke after you said the word Harvard.
0: Yeah, I kind of threw up in my mouth because I have a, har- a Harvard Harvard person coming on my podcast, and I don't like that very much. But we'll make do. <laughs> uh,
1: unreal, unreal. Yeah, it's a great beautiful day here in St. Louis. I will talk about the weather and the smoothie I just murdered. <laughs> Doing both things, I love. (laughs) Good
0: for you. Um, hey, hey, before before we get to the hockey stuff, I do want, because I forgot to do it on the last uh, episode that we had, I want to send, send a uh, congratulations to the UMD Bulldogs for winning the national championship second in a row, which, uh, dude, that's like unheard of, winning two national championships in a row and at the NCAA Division One level. Um, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's absolutely crazy, and uh, Scott Sandlin and his staff, congrats to you guys for a very, very, very well job done, and uh, I was able to watch them play up in Buffalo, actually, their semifinal game where they played against Providence, and dude, this was actually pretty crazy. Um, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, how a team is a, a reflection of their coach and how the coach treats people, but in the semifinal game, UMD actually had two goals disallowed in the first period. And, uh, it was, it was nuts. One of them should have been disallowed, but one of them I thought should have been a goal. Um, and it was crazy because the ref both times went over to explain it to to coach Sandlin and he just kind of was like, all right, let's move on. And, um, like he had like his body language is just like stoic, like, all right, let's go. And uh, I feel like 95% of coaches in that situation would, would lose their minds, but he didn't. And uh, uh, just kind of a testament to the kind of guy that he is and the kind of program that he runs. I mean, they were everything, man. Like, they were fast. They were skilled. They were hard structurally. I mean, you couldn't get anything past them. They had great goaltending. And uh, it, was, it was a pleasure to see, to, to watch them. So congrats to the University of Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs on uh, winning the national championship. Great job.
1: Yeah, a couple clicks for the boys. That's uh, a serious feat. But wow, having two goals disallowed in the first period of that big of a game—that is unheard of. That's insane. That you saying that—you uh, know—the players are a reflection of the coach. Uh, I don't know, man. I had two. If I had two goals disallowed on me, I'd probably be absolutely snapping. It reminds me of my last year when I was playing in the Austrian league. I was having a tough year, uh, finding the back of the net for the first time in a while, and in one month I had three goals disallowed and first one. Okay. You know, I was upset, obviously probably snapped a little second one. I started to kind of lose it. Third one happened. And I think it was back to back games from the second to the third. And when they reviewed it and the ref waved it off after video review, I speared my stick into the bench. The blade broke off. I broke it into another piece over the boards. And then I kicked the trash can behind the bench Which then got stuck on my foot and made me fall over in front of everybody. (laughs) Good thing he was the guy behind the bench and not me, because I don't know how I would handle myself in that situation. Oh, man. snapshot! I love it. I I got fined for, uh, I had to buy a new trash can. (laughs) (laughs) Must have set you back a lot. Yeah. Yeah. In in that frigging country, it probably cost me 80 cents. Yeah. Well, Well worth it. Oh man! Hey, so hey, dude, have you been
0: watching the NHL playoffs at all? How unreal are these playoffs this year?
1: I have not been able to watch that much. I watch the highlights, but I work till like eight thirty, eight forty-five at night. Get home, go to bed, do it. Get back up at five. No, too tired. I watched. That one, the highlights. <laughs> and that's good enough for me. I saw that uh, Tampa Bay <coughs> choked. They choked real hard. I don't even know if
0: they choked, man. I just think Columbus played better than them. I mean, maybe you could technically call that choking, but, like, Columbus is loaded, dude. And they came out hard. Dude, these playoffs have been – I mean, what other sport can you have the eight seed beating the one seed twice – Colorado beating Calgary and then Columbus beating Tampa Bay. I mean, you know, we talk about on the podcast all the time, like how important it is to kind of go through some of the low points during, during a season and getting out of it and learning how to do that. I mean, certainly with, you know, the amount of upsets that we've seen, you know, the Islanders beating the Penguins too. And um, it's, it's incredible. And I think there's a lot to be said about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the game of hockey is by far the most intense playoffs of any sport that I know of, you know, like other than old school UFC, like UFC one and two, where you had to have like four fights in a night to become, <laughs> that is insane. But, uh, if anybody has not seen UFC one and two, like you need to rent those. They're unbelievable. But anyways, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an absolute grind and a battle to win a playoff series in the show. So uh, it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, even look at the blues, man, like your St. Louis blues down there. I mean, they were last, Dead last in the NHL, fired their coach, and now they beat the Winnipeg Jets, who a lot of people had tabbed at the beginning of the year to be the Stanley Cup favorites along with Tampa Bay. Um, you know, and they've they move on. Uh it's it's absolutely crazy. It just goes to show you how important that resiliency muscle is and and how important it is to, you know, get through those tough times in, in a positive way. And uh it's certainly helped a lot of these teams in the playoffs this year. And uh, I just I, I think it's amazing.
1: 100 percent have you seen any of the videos from uh interviews with bennington the blues goalie the he's young an one
0: absolute beauty dude
1: oh my god he's either the weirdest human ever or <laughs> the funniest the human ever like i don't know because i don't personally know him i know people that do but i'm not going to say um you know which one it is because i just think his interviews are absolutely <laughs> hilarious it's, I, I, every time i die it's yeah it's yeah like or something
0: yeah, absolutely. And and kind of going along with the playoff talk, I mentioned the New York Islanders. Honestly, man, like I just actually sent out a tweet. It's Sunday night. I just sent one out. I am legitimately rooting for the New York Islanders to win the Stanley Cup right now. And the reason why is, first of all, I love Barry Trotz. I think Barry Trotz is one of the best coaches of all time. I mean, what he's done um, in, in getting people to buy in and create a culture, which is stuff that I really believe in, I, I mean, it's it's incredible. What he did in Nashville for all those years, You know, getting Ovi and, and some of those skilled guys to buy in to play in a certain way in, in Washington and then winning a cup and then you know, going from a team where – everybody picked them to kind of be last this year and, and moving on and now they're, they've beaten Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin but you know, I sent out a tweet like I said before of Robin Leonard and him talking about his mental health struggles and, and how the Islanders have helped him and took a chance on him and believed in him um, and it's a five-minute video, but it's absolutely worth it to watch. And the fact that they are on the forefront of educating people about mental health, and and it's just it's unbelievable. And they have a fan in me right now. And I honestly, and I'm not saying like I hope they win the cup. Like I sincerely. <laughs> I'm rooting for them to win the Stanley Cup this year. Um, being at the forefront of the mental health, um, you know, they're they're helping to end the stigma uh, about talking about mental health. And look at Robin Leonard and what he's been able to do this year, along with Barry Trotz and with the support of their staff. I mean,
1: go Islanders, go Islanders. That's that's after they lost JT too. Yeah. You know, I mean, losing Justin Timberlake is a big piece of your team. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> But, yeah, just kind of interesting. It takes me back to thinking about, you know, that stuff that went down with uh, our boy Rob Shrimp who we had on the show in the beginning. Um, one of the best shows we've ever had, I think, and goes along with the mental health and and talking about it. So if you have not heard that episode, please go back and listen to Rob Shrimp's episode um, that we did with him. But, yeah, he had a tweet uh, about maybe about a month or two ago now where, um, you know, he said something about, like, the team is way better off not having – uh, Taveras, you know, just because they treated him like a well above everyone else. And now that he's gone, the team could kind of gel. And, you know, whether that's true or not, I mean, it's working. So looks like they didn't need him.
0: Yeah. well, It just goes back to creating a culture where everybody has belief in each other and you bring the best version of yourself. Right. I think that's what Barry Trotz is all about. And, and you got Washington to play like that last year. You got um, Nashville to play like that forever when he was the coach there. Um, I mean, he was the coach there for a million years. I mean, it's been him and Peter Laviolette. That's that's it. Um, so just one of the best coaches of all time, um, and, and just Robin Leonard, like bravo to him. I mean, how unbelievably courageous of him to, to speak out and, and talk about his struggles. And I guarantee you him doing that. And the Islanders giving him a chance is legitimately going to change lives. And I really hope that not only NHL teams, but teams from NHL to juniors, to college, all the way down to the youth levels. I hope that they see this and they see how important talking about mental health is, right? Like, here's a guy that was probably going to be out of the league, and one team took a chance on him and believed in him and, and helped him get the help that he needed. And now he's, you know, they won the Jennings Trophy, and their team went from last in the league in goals against to first in the league in goals against. And, uh, it, again, it just goes to show you how important mental health is and how important it is to, to really take care of it and, and not just take care of it yourself, but help people along the way who, who need some help too.
1: Um, <clears throat> probably should know this, but what is the Jennings trophy?
0: Uh, like lowest goals against average. Oh Yeah. Not a, not that, I'm a nerd, not that big of a nerd. Not watching the playoffs, doesn't know what the Jennings is. I'm, Do you know who Robin Leonard is? Yeah, I know <laughs> who
1: Robin is. Come on, man, I'm concerned with my guys for, from now until they go to their tryouts and camps and stuff, and I kind of just tunnel vision on that, and the rest of my life falls to the wayside for the next few months, but Jennings trophy. All right. Well, learn something new every day. Thank you. <laughs> You're
0: welcome. Everybody tweeted, Jeff. Hashtag Jennings, idiot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> or go uh, on Instagram. There are definitely, listeners to our podcast who don't know what the Jennings Trophy is, I will guarantee that. Maybe, 100%. Maybe, maybe
0: not. Anyway, let's uh, going along with the whole mental health uh, issues that we're talking about. Um, we talked a lot about it uh, in our Al Wa episode here too. Um, you know, he's uh, an NHL agent and um, had a lot of great stories. And and one of the things he talked about, and you can actually kind of hear him get almost a little bit emotional talking about, it, is one of his guys was Rick Rippen. Um, who tragically took his life a couple years ago, and, and he was somebody that, that dealt with, with mental health issues. And, um, you know, it's it's something that's prevalent in, in today's, not just, you know, sports or hockey, but in, in, in life in general. And I think, again, that's why I applaud Robin Leonard so much, because it is so hard to talk about those kinds of things. And the fact that somebody of his nature and stature is doing that, it will certainly help other people who are struggling with things to have the courage to do so as well. Um, but yeah, Al, you know, he, having him talk about Rick Rippon uh, a little bit on our podcast episode, just, I mean, it was another reason of, of how important the mental health aspect is
1: a hundred percent. And, um, I got to play against Rick Rippon in the American league a few times and my God, like what a competitor. I mean, for those of you who who are listening to this don't know who Rick Rippon is, YouTube Rick Rippin, I believe it's R-Y-P-I-E-N. You will never find another NHL player, pound for pound, that was a better fighter or had more heart or was tougher than Rick Rippen. Like, he has been, since I saw his first fight, my favorite NHL fighter of all time. The way that he fought was – it was – nuts he like wouldn't even hold on he'd like block punches with his elbow then when the guy would cock back he'd throw a quick jab then put his elbow up to block it and he's fighting guys like Hal Gill like Rick Rippin was like 5'11 182 pounds and Hal Gill was like 6'11 and a half like whatever the hell he was you know six seven. so I mean just unbelievable guy. I've never heard a bad thing about him and it's super tragic. And, you know, if we keep progressing things like the way Robin Leonard is and Al talking about it and, and things like that, hopefully, you know, these kind of tragedies will never have to happen again.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and that was one of the things he talked about, you know, being an agent, you know, you're not just negotiating contracts, right? Like he's helping players. Cause you know, some of these guys who sign these contracts at young ages, like they don't even know how to boil an egg. You know, they've, they've kind of been, no, but seriously, you know, they haven't been away from home. Maybe they've played juniors, but still in juniors, when you're that good, you're kind of coddled and people do things for you and stuff. And then when you get to the pros, you got to learn about certain things in life, like how to open a bank account, how to open a checking account like all those kinds of things. So, you know, as an agent, I mean, your job is not just to you know, handle the money and things like that. But you got to help these guys along the process of what it means to be a professional athlete and how to take care of things, um, how to set yourself up once you are done playing hockey and things like that. Um, I think some agents do a really good job of that. Some of them don't. They're just kind of worry about the paycheck. Um, but uh, it, was, it was interesting to hear his perspective on that and, and how important his job is, not just what goes on the ice, but how these, you know, these people kind of handle their business off the ice as well.
1: For sure, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of good agents out there, and there's a lot of good ones. Uh, excuse my French, um, but yeah, I mean, like, just going back to me and you know, like, I, I, my first NHL contract. Like, I was coming out of college. I never had a real, real job before. Like, yes, my parents had taught me how to, you know, use a credit card and open up a bank account and stuff like that. But I never like put large sums of money in there like I did. Like, my first check was my NHL signing bonus and stuff like that. So for me, like my first agent, like he helped me like do that. He helped me get a financial advisor. He helped me get disability insurance. Um, he told me like how much money I should be spending in the summer and then went through that with my financial planner. And he helped that he helped me, um, get in touch with people when I was looking for engagement rings. Like he, he, they help with so much stuff and the good, the good agents become part of your family um it's pretty cool like it's it's definitely uh it was cool to hear al talk about one of his longest tenured clients from knowing them from their first contract until their retirement and then having kids and he's going to their wedding and it's just really cool and um you know i i I could be wrong i don't know if agents are like that in other sports but good guys like al i mean you know there's there's a reason that i'm i'm friends with al and i believe in what he does and, and we're talking about doing things together in the future he's just he's one of the good ones man
0: yeah, yeah, and it was interesting to kind of hear him kind of like talk about two different ends of the spectrum, right? Like, we talked about the day that Nico Heischer got drafted number one overall. And he told the story about that. And that was really cool. I'll leave that for, for, the, uh, for later in the podcast uh, and let him tell it. Um, but then also, yeah, we kind of asked him, like, what – is there a certain player or is there, you know, a certain deal that you did that kind of was special to you? And, and kind of his answer was like, hey, like there's been guys that I've worked with for over 20 years. You know, they were 16-year-olds playing major junior, and, and now they have kids and, and, uh, and a wife and a family. And um, now I'm going to try and help them transition to life after hockey and it's almost like he's part of their family and uh, again it goes back to it and we talk about it all the time people are probably sick of hearing me talk about it but it, it all comes down to how you treat people right like people who are good at their jobs treat people the right way Um, 95% of the people anyway, (laughs) um, in this business anyway. And, and, uh, yeah, it was really cool to hear him talk about kind of like the personal side about what he does and, and, uh, um, yeah, just those two stories, Nico, he's your number one overall, crazy, crazy, awesome stuff. And then, you know, other guys that have slugged it in the minors and having to really help them out. I mean, it's, uh, it's a tough job for sure.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. And and talking about doing things the right way, I wanted to bring this up because we talked about this on our on our last episode, the the rant episode. Um, you know, when should kids go to junior tryouts and do they need to go to all of the pre-draft combines and the pre-draft tryout and the pre-draft tryout, tryout, like however many millions <laughs> these teams are doing. And yes, you know, uh, I talked with one of Sioux City's owners, one of my friends, Lloyd Ney and uh what's up Lloydie? i know he listens to the podcast but um you know i know junior teams have to make money it's not some kind of it's, it's not a non-for-profit organization and a lot of teams are bleeding money but you know if it was talking to lloyd because he's like you know i really like that you talked about that because sioux city doesn't doesn't do the the pre-draft or whatever i don't even know what he said they don't do um in the ushl sioux city musketeers and talking to him i was like well wouldn't a better way be to have a camp for the guys who you are interested in before the draft, but make it a learning experience. Bring them in. Show them what a day in the USHL is like. Show them what video looks like in the USHL. Have the coaches there coaching the kids so they get to know each other. Then the coach can make a little money. It's still a camp. The kids are going to be paying for it. and Then you can have all your scouts, all your staff, scouting the camp as these kids are actually learning something and getting better. So Instead of you just taking the kids as money, You're evaluating them and providing them with a service. Now they're going to want to go to that team even more because now they're um, familiar with the staff, with the rank, with the city. I just think that's a way better way to go about it. And you can still evaluate and maybe pluck out a couple kids that you didn't know really you had your eye on. You could still do that except you're making all the kids better. So you're providing them with something that is actually helping them, not just stealing their money. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense. I don't know if there's like rules against doing something like that before the draft. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. I've, I have no idea. Um, but at draft.
1: least. What's the difference?
0: Don't uh, they do- yeah, I don't. I've, just, just plain devil's advocate. I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if you're going to have people pay money, like, certainly make it worthwhile you know, make sure that they leave there with some value, right? Like, Hey, I've learned something. Hey, I got a little bit better. Not just, you know, I'm going to go on the ice and, and, uh, you know, showcase myself. Like, that's the thing. Like if it's a showcase, don't do it, you know, like don't do it. If it's something that's going to help you get better, then yeah, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of value to that for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. No, it makes, makes sense.
1: And going to one I don't think is bad, especially if you're a younger guy. Get to learn about what, what are the older guys like, what's the style of play like, obviously if it's a good one. But, like, the kids are going to 10, you know, and we see it all the time. And I know we talked about this on the ramp, but, like, take that $350 you are spending in a camp and spend that on a skills coach or on a strength coach or, I don't know, on a yoga coach, on a nutritionist. Like – you could spend that money way more wisely that you'll get way more out of that money than you will going to some you know, BS camp that no one's even paying attention to. <laughs> Sorry, junior teams, bursting your bubble.
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean going to it. Like the colleges go – most of them – I don't know if most of them, but a lot of them go to the USHL trial camps, right? And there's some of the trial camps that have legitimately 10 teams. So there's, like, 200 kids there. And you just, like, you sit there and you watch and you're like, this is, I don't even know why I'm here. Like, there's a few of them that actually have, like, four teams, right? So it's competitive and it's fast and it's, it's actually good because most of the players that are out there, like, they've invited there. And, like, sincerely invited there. Not, like, send an email to a million different people and let's see what comes. And, uh, like, there's, those are actually halfway worthwhile. I don't know how many teams do it. It wasn't many when I was coaching, but... Um, yeah. I mean, make it worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. Like make sure the kids get something out of it. If you are going to do something like that.
1: My buddy who I won't say his name, he's like, I'm bad at guessing ages. He's probably 45, 50. He got a invitation to a trial camp. For <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and he told me and I'm like, dude, that is what's wrong with this crap. Like, come on, man. That's so funny yeah that's so funny all right
0: well we've been talking here enough um, again we want to thank everybody for for tuning in and listening uh, again we're getting pretty close here to a hundred thousand downloads and uh if you ha- we're, we're trying to f- you know we're trying to find a, a fun thing to do for for our hundred thousandth download and uh, so if you have any ideas, certainly tweet at us or or uh, get in touch with us on instagram uh, if you have any fun ideas we've had a few fun ones so far um, but uh, again, appreciate everybody tuning in. Um, and and sharing us and and writing reviews and and uh, things like that. I mean, that kind of feedback is is great for us because again, we want to get better and and we want to know what you guys want to hear. So we'll continue to bring on guests and you know, having an agent on is something that uh, a lot of people wanted. Um, and we do get into some stuff about you know how young it's gotten and and the parallels between the agent business and, and kind of college recruiting right now. Um, so uh, a lot of great stuff on this episode here with Al. Uh, really good guy. Um, so uh, without further ado, we will stop talking and we'll send it right over to Al Wah. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast NHL Certified Agent Al Waugh. And uh, before we kind of get to you, Al, I just I have to say and apologize to all my Cornell people because we have a Harvard guy on the podcast and it kind of kills me to do that, but you're a good guy, so I guess we can, uh, I guess we can manage yours. But uh, how are you doing down in St. Louis today?
2: I'm I'm good, and I promise I'll speak slowly for your Cornell guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Boom, roasted on your own show, eight seconds in. That's
0: pretty good. Uh, thanks for
2: having me on, guys.
0: <laughs> no problem, no problem. Well, Al, let's take it way back to to kind of your upbringing and and how you fell in love with the sport. You're from Campbellton, New Bru- or uh, yeah, Campbellton, New Brunswick, uh, which is right outside of Quebec. And I have to say that um, probably my one of my most favorite kids that I recruited to Cornell is a New Brunswick kid and uh, a lot of great people out there so talk to us a little bit about your childhood and in, in New Brunswick and how you fell in love with the game.
2: Yeah in uh, Maritime is a great place to, to grow up and uh, you know my, my family's all still there so I go back quite a bit but I uh, you know like most Canadian kids started playing hockey when I was four and uh, I had I, I grew up in a pretty big family six kids so I had three older brothers. And by default, became the goalie. Uh, that was uh, pretty much uh, how my uh, cr- my goalie career started—an uh, unfinished basement and uh, three guys shooting hard pucks at you with uh, one baseball glove, a hockey glove, and a stick. So that was it. <laughs> so that oh my was. Gosh. So the pe- people often ask me, you know, like you know, why did you become a goalie? And and honestly, that was uh, that was my first experience with it. And then uh, when I first started playing, my, my dad was my first coach. And uh, we showed up at our first game and uh, there was no goalie. So I said, hey, I'm used to it because my brothers uh, used to take shots at me all the time. So I'll do it. Kind of fell in love with the position right away. And uh, wow. now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, what is it? Uh,
1: Forty, 46 years later and uh, hockey has been very good to me. Unreal. That reminds me of Slapshot Regatta. Have you seen that? <laughs> What's that movie with Slapshot Regatta? No, My what best is best friend's or something. I don't know, but it's them playing uh, hockey like with a baseball glove in the basement. It's like literally the same thing. So that's a great yeah. story. Oh, is you that learn like, to yeah. work on your reflexes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's uh that's great and and you know you you parlayed uh, a great childhood hockey into going to Choate prep school uh in the connecticut area and from there you went to the dark side uh went to harvard and uh obviously great education great hockey program there uh won a national championship as uh, as a freshman um so talk to us a little bit about you know your recruitment to harvard why you chose harvard and and ultimately what your experience was like there
2: yeah, my you know my story's a little uh, different because I was one of the first French-speaking kids on the Maritimes to uh, to pick the NCAA, <clears throat> and honestly, I, I really had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, I I was I guess scouted by Tim Burke, who is now the head scout for San Jose. He oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Was
2: back was back then an assistant coach at Princeton, and he saw me at some select tournament in. Uh, in Moncton, New Brunswick, and he's like, "Hey, you ever think about playing NCAA?" And I think I was 14 at that time, or maybe 15, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, he uh, basically got me in touch with uh, the coach at Choate Rosemary Hall, and they were good enough to uh, give me a scholarship to go to Choate. And that's kind of how you know I happened to go to the U.S. Like I, I, I knew nothing about the NCAA. Once I got a little bit older, then you know Maine used to recruit a lot in the Maritimes and. Uh, they, they they loved to bring Maritimers in because it was so close to Orno. Uh, they started talking to me and then BU and, and then I started to kind of educate myself a little bit more about the NCAA but back then I, I could pick between the Q and the OHL because uh, there were no teams in the Maritimes. So I had the choice between the two and I was drafted in the Q and the OHL but decided to bypass those and, and go NCAA. And had a good year at Choke. We had, we had a very good team. Uh, went to the New Englands. Facing uh, Thayer Academy with Jeremy Roenick and Tony Amante oh, on one those line, those teams, yeah, they never yeah. came off the ice. <laughs> uh, those guys were—they probably played forty-five minutes a game. And, and there's a guy—I can't remember the guy's name—that played on their line, and he probably had like 120 points. Went to Harvard on, for and to play hockey, and then once he got to Harvard, ended up playing JV. And so, so that tells you how good those two guys were. Cause that guy, that guy that went to Harvard, uh, never had a chance to play varsity but he, wow. he, he led uh, he led the uh, prep schools going so that was uh, that was always an, an interesting uh, that was an interesting league you know there was a lot of good players and prep school hockey back then was a little different too where most guys didn't go to the USHL or the na you, you would go right from prep school to college and almost everybody was a true freshman back then uh, if you were you know if you're past 18 uh, it was rare for guys to go to college as a 2021 20, year old uh, you had 18. Some guys would do a PG year, and that was it. So, uh, so I, I went to Choate, applied to a few schools, uh, and uh, got into uh, Princeton, Cornell, Cornell, and Harvard. And I actually, uh, this is going to sadden you, Topher, but I committed to Cornell for one day,
0: oh, and uh, yikes, and
2: decommitted de- within 24 hours.
0: Oh my and god! Back,
2: yeah, back then was uh, Brian McCutcheon was. Coach. Yeah, And, uh, and I, I like Brian. I, I've seen Brian a lot since then cause he was in pro hockey for a while, but I heard a, quite a few, uh, choice curse words in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically like a 40 minute, uh, berating me of why I, I changed my mind, but uh, it was just, so why did you, why did
0: you change your mind?
2: And, you know what? I, I, I was going to go to Cornell. They had a, a really good goalie there named Corey Delessio, who was an uh, all American, And he was going to be a junior when I was a freshman. And I really did not want to sit for two years. And that was my concern. I was like, "Ah." but if I went to Harvard, it was going to be Chucky and I, Chucky Hughes and I, and we were both going to be freshmen and just battle it out. So I basically just had that gut feeling like, Hey, I just want to battle it out with this guy and see who, whoever wins, wins. And, you know, uh, as it worked out, we ended up splitting the first year and winning the NCAAs. So we we each played, uh, I would play Friday and Chucky would play Saturday. And we did it all the way through the finals.
0: My goodness.
1: My goodness. Clearly a good decision though. <laughs> yeah, I ended up working out okay. Al, I got to ask you a question because I always wondered about this, like especially back then, did you get pressure from Q? coaches or scouts or family members or anything like when you decided like to go to the US were they like no you need to play in the queue like you're close to Quebec. Like I feel like there's so much pride in that league. Oh yeah. And for the surrounding yes. area, like every guy I ever played with in pro, they have so much pride coming from the QMJHL. So I'm I was just wondering like were you pressured? Like what are you doing? Like you should be playing up here or
2: I you know the the, the route that I that I chose at that time was very very different because very few guys would go into a. so I remember I got a lot of pressure from the queue and I also got drafted by Hamilton uh what was it the Hamilton? I think it was Hamilton Steel or Steelheads or whatever back back in the day and Bill LaForge I don't know if you remember Bill LaForge he was the coach and the GM he drove to Hamilton to take me to dinner with my dad and I'll always remember that dinner because he, he was such an intimidating guy. Uh, Bill LaForge is the guy that, like, you know, when he coached in the NHL, the rumor was he would tell guys to, like, file down their visors. And, like, he was, he was, he was, he coached many teams <laughs> where there were many bench brawls. So he was a pretty scary guy. And I remember him taking us to dinner and, and kind of shaking in my boots throughout the whole dinner. Know, knowing that I was going to tell him I'm not going, and and I had to wait till the very end. And I'm like, okay, "Yeah, thanks, Mister LaForge, but I really don't think I'm going to go." And he actually handled it pretty well. Like he he got me ready for uh, Brian McCutcheon's call. So it was, I was, was going to say,
0: out. like Brian McCutcheon was the guy that actually ended up giving it to you instead of him. That's uh, that's exactly pretty
2: funny. yeah. He he took it pretty well, but I, I was pretty nervous to, to tell him. But yeah, th- th- there was a lot of pressure and. and now it's a much more common route and, you know, kids, kids are faced with that decision uh, every day now. And it seems like, you know, people expect that uh, they're not always going to be the first choice, but back then it was like, yeah, French Canadian kid, everybody thought I was going to go to the queue. And then when I opted out of the queue, they thought I was going to go to the OHL. And then when I went to NCAA, like everyone's like, what? The? And honestly, I, I had no idea what I was getting into to, to give you an idea of where I'm from. The first two years I was at Harvard, my mom told everybody I was going to Hartford College. Because so <laughs> uh, who that, knows that, Harvard? Jeez, yeah. Exactly. So, so that, in a nutshell, tells you what, how small my town is and how remote, wow. you know, we are from the NCAA there.
0: That's so funny. I actually told a story, um, on a previous podcast just a couple weeks ago about the one kid that I recruited from New Brunswick and he didn't know what Cornell was either. Like he, he thought I was yeah. lying to him when I was like, yeah, it's an Ivy league school. And he's like, yeah, who is this guy? And then he like went on the internet and it was like, Oh, it actually, he wasn't lying to me. Um, yeah. but, uh, I wanted to yeah, ask we're, you. We're,
2: Al, uh, no, I was, I was just going to say we are pretty immune to that world. Well, we were in the Maritimes now, not so much, you know, with, you know, this is before the, you had the internet and, uh, you, you had, uh, you know, a lot of stuff out there that easily accessible information back then, like, unless you knew somebody who went there, you had no idea what you were talking about. All I knew was university of Maine pretty much because, uh, they, uh, they had a good program and, uh, they pretty much had a farm team in Halifax at that point, <laughs> so it was that was the only college that we knew of.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I wanted to ask you about your time at Harvard and specifically about uh, one of your teammates, who's the head coach there right now, and Teddy Donato. Um, you know, what was Teddy like to play with as a player, and is he the kind of guy that like? Were you surprised when he became a coach, and and because he's a character, like he's one of the funnier guys on the circuit for sure, and a bit of a goof, but I'm sure there's a serious side to him. He's done really well at, at Harvard. What was he like as a teammate
2: a great teammate uh, a very good player and honestly with when you looked at his size and his skating was just okay uh had a very successful career because such a smart player you know and i wasn't surprised he became coach because uh he knows the game so well always worked hard and uh really kind of a good x's and o's kind of guy uh and would do well in the recruiting because he does have such a good personality you know like he's uh very outgoing and, and, and kind of an easygoing guy, but can also be intensive times. Uh, to me, one of the best coaches in college hockey right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, he's certainly done really well with that program. And, um, you know, you went from Harvard and, and actually won a silver medal in uh, the 94 Olympics after that. So talk to us a little bit about what kind of experience that was and, and how cool it was to represent your country at, at such a big stage and then come home with a silver medal. Um, that had to have been unbelievable.
1: Yeah, it
2: was a great experience. Uh, that was the the last Olympics where amateurs played. You know, the next one in 98 was when the NHL players were allowed back in. So I was part of the program for 92-93 uh, and 93-94. So the previous year to the Olympics, we had uh, a national team that was basically like a turnstile of players. But we were based in Calgary, and we played 72-game schedule around the world, which was Very interesting. You know, we played in Japan, we played in Russia, uh, all over Europe, and then we also played in a lot of small towns across Canada against other national teams, which was a really good experience. And then, uh, you know, I started the season 93 94 with them, and uh, right around, I think, late November, I actually got cut from the Olympic team devastated. Uh, Corey Hirsch got sent to us. By the Rangers, so it was Manny, Legacy, myself, and Corey Hirsch, and, and basically, Hirsch, took my job, and uh, I was sent by the Winnipeg Jets. I was I was under contract with Winnipeg then to go play in Jokari, Finland. So not only did I get cut from the Olympic team, but I got sent to Finland
1: on the wow. same day.
2: So so it was wow. a, bit, a bit a bit of a hard pill to swallow, and uh, you know I, I remember I remember that like it was yesterday because I was pretty pretty devastated. Uh, went to Finland had a really good start and got a call from the Olympic team saying, Hey, we're going to pick you back up for the Olympics. So, uh, right before, uh, right before the Olympics, I'd say in, in late December, I got that call knowing I was going to join them again. So that was exciting. So it was, uh, Corey Hirsch, Manny and myself. And, uh, I actually, I actually got to back up the gold medal game. Uh, Hershey played every game cause he was on fire and he was so good. And uh, Manny in warmups of the gold medal game, uh, in pure Manny fashion, was down in the butterfly, too lazy to get back up, and he took one in the midsection, and <laughs> could not play in the game. So, so I had to run down and put the gear on, and uh, and sure enough, you know, we go we go to overtime, and Hershey gets hurt, and I'm like, if I have to go in here, I am gonna have a heart attack, and then uh, I went to the shootout, but Hershey got run over in overtime, and I was like, oh my God, like, please don't put me in there. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, uh, her, got back up and that was the, that was the famous Peter Forsberg goal. The one hander, uh, that won the gold for that. Oh, wow. so it there's a yeah, a bit bittersweet feeling, you know, there's some people you win a silver and to us at that moment, it, it, we lost the goal. You know, that's, that's how it felt to us. And, uh, it was, uh, but what, a, what a great experience. And, uh, you know, what, what a great group of guys and I'm still in touch with a lot of those guys, uh, you know, really, really tight group. And, uh, it was uh, in Lillehammer, which is a city of maybe 30,000 people, and I think it was a million people in there for the Olympics. So it was, it was very stacked. Uh, and uh, you know, what, to me, like uh, that—that's probably uh, in my hockey career, probably the highlight experience for me. That in the NCAA uh, tournament.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, wow, that's that's really cool. And one of my earliest kind of hockey memories is actually going to the Hall of Fame in Toronto when we were there for a tournament. And they had this like little booth where you can actually go into the booth and like call some of, like be the announcer, uh, broadcaster for some of like the biggest plays ever. So you had like some of Gretzky's uh, award-winning goals, and I remember the one that I chose was that actual Peter Forsberg, uh, you know, one-hander. In that, that's so, that's pretty crazy that you were there for that. But I wanted to, you know, kind of change course a little bit, just with something that you mentioned. Well, just
2: just a, a side, a side story to that. I don't know if you guys knew, but uh, in Sweden, they made a stamp of that goal with, uh, with oh, really? a picture of Forsberg and Corey Hirsch, and Hirsch actually sued them to take the stamp out of, uh, I read that. I feel like I read that somewhere to take the the stamp out of circulation. Yeah. So it's, just a little side note.
0: Wow, interesting. <laughs> wow, well, that's that's actually who I wanted to ask you about, Al. Is, is Corey Hirsch because he's made, you know, he's made some news over the past year or so, um, being very, very courageous and and talking about his mental health struggles and the issues that he's had to deal with. You know, I'm sure you still keep in touch with him with uh, the profession that you have and and know him very well. Um, you know, kind of what's your take on on just kind of like more and more people in the game you know you had Robin Leonard come out and talk about his mental health struggles um obviously Corey Hirsch was was one of the first people to do that and I can't like it's so courageous that he did so you know knowing him as well as you do you know w- what was your kind of reaction when you saw that he was struggling and uh did you know maybe did you know that he was struggling or when the news came out how, how did you kind of react to that
2: you know uh first of all very brave of him uh and uh and much needed in pro sports Uh, and, you know, I played with Hershey for that season, loved him as a teammate. Most of us did not know he struggled that badly, you know, because I think he did a good job of hiding it. And, and his comments about the stigma attached to it are exactly correct. Uh, and as much as we try to be open about it and say, Hey guys, it's okay. If you got an issue, you got to speak about it. Uh, you, no one in pro sports in any pro sport, whether it's hockey or, or any of the other three major sports can honestly say it's not going to affect a decision by management at some point, uh, because you've, you've come out with it. And that's the part that's really hard for people to to, to deal with. Uh, you, you don't want a stigma attached to it and there shouldn't be a stigma attached to it, but human nature is that, uh, I, behind closed doors, I, I do think that management has that discussion, you know, and good for Robin Leonard to, to speak out and then have a great, uh, great season, great start to the playoffs. I dealt with it personally with uh, Rick Rippon and, uh, and, you know, and that one didn't end uh, in a good way. Uh, and, and Rick was a great person uh, really wanted to make everybody happy, but uh, you know, left a legacy behind to, for people to talk about this stuff. And uh, you know, I, I think we've, we've improved how we're dealing with it in the last few years, but we do need to do a better job. And the only way we're going to do a better job is if we really find a way to get rid of the stigma because it's very hard for guys to, to speak up, especially while they're playing.
0: So in, in in your line of work, you obviously know a lot of people, and, and I'm sure with what happened to Rick, um, you know, you've had a lot of conversations. What do you think are some ways that either the NHL or the hockey world in general can um, continue to help fight that stigma. And, and obviously Robin Lanner and what he's done and, and Corey Hirsch speaking out and some of the things that have come out uh, with some other guys is, is a, a huge piece to it. People feeling the, that they can speak out and they can share their stories. But is there anything else in your conversations or you know, any opinions that you have that can help to try and end that stigma as well?
2: Yeah, it, uh, somebody came up with the idea of having almost like a uh, an ex player as a mentor for each NHL team, where guys could turn to and feel like uh, it's not going to get back to management. And I, I do think that that's always the the concern for guys uh, is that you know they're, they're going to bring up that they have an issue, uh, whether it's to the the team, you know, the, the sports psychologist, team psychologist or, uh, somebody else on the medical staff and somehow it finds its way back to, to management. And, and there are great professionals out there and, and, uh, and I think they do a good job of keeping stuff, uh, confidential. But, uh, on the other hand, you know, if there's erratic behavior, uh, and it's caused by mental illness, it's going to get back to management because, you know, players, trainers, coaches will see it. And, uh, and then usually, you know, that, Makes people feel like they're labeled, and uh, I don't, you know, I don't have the answer, the, the 100% answer, how to get away from that. But I would say that the more we talk about it, the more we make people feel like it's okay to talk about it. Uh, the more, not just the people suffering from mental illness will be able to deal with it, but the people on the other side are going to feel like it's it's okay, you know, like it's we'll, we'll find a solution, and it's still the same person, still the same player, and. We'll make it work, you know, and I think the, the more we try to hide these things, we don't talk about it, uh, the more it becomes a problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think one of the big things that is, is also talked about nowadays, kind of going along the same lines is, you know, the transition out of hockey um, for a lot of the players, once they're done playing professionally, you know, for a lot of these guys, hockey is all that they know. Um, that's all that they've ever done. That's all that they've ever been passionate about. So once that kind of gets, I don't want to say taken away from them, but once, you know, they're no longer able to compete at that level, you know, do you feel like that's, you know, a huge part of your job as an agent is to make sure that guys are kind of set up for life after hockey. And maybe what are some things that you do with your clients and and within your company that helps guys to transition out of it?
2: Uh, there, there definitely is a big responsibility on our part. Uh, I don't think, and and again, I'm not throwing everybody under the bus here, but I I do think that a lot of agents do not do a good job of that because once the player is not your client anymore, they don't seem to care, you know? Uh, and it's interesting you bring this up because we are actually putting together with our, uh, financial arm, uh, a, a life after hockey program that's gonna be like no other in the agency world that's gonna kick off this spring. And uh, it's gonna be all about that. It's gonna be all about uh, helping guys not just create their own brand, but enhance their brand while they're playing and their network. Because what player a lot of players don't realize is when you're at the height of your popularity, your network's strong, everything's great, is when these guys don't wanna have that conversation. They're like, I don't need to think about after hockey. And you know what, even if you're making $8 million a year, you still need to do something with your life from your mid-30s on. So uh, I, I think it's very wrong for players to feel that way, that like, hey, I, I can just play it and I'll figure it out when I'm done, because those are the guys that end up usually depressed or in a full panic because they haven't given any thought to it. So we, we will start uh, this spring uh, putting, uh, you know, the thoughts and the process in mind of all of our players as soon as their career starts, as to okay, what's your brand? Uh, what's your brand going to look like? You know, while you're playing, what's your brand going to look like when you're done? And then basically start having the conversation about what are your aptitudes? What would you like to do when you're done playing? Do you want an entrepreneur? Do you want to get in real estate? And we're putting a, a program in place that's like no other, and I'm excited to kick that off here in the next uh, couple months.
0: I think that's I think that's great and and let me ask you this question though, because you know you as an agent are you know you have a lot of relationships not only with players but also- also with management you know how much would management be receptive to guys kind of like doing other things other than hockey because I feel like there is a stigma or a stereotype that like if a guy that's playing is getting too much into other things well he's not really focusing on his hockey career and it's not helping our team win so like is there a little bit of a balance that you have to try and um, kind of try and f- toe the line with both of those or like how how typically are the NHL teams and the management when it comes to guys having other interests and guys putting time and effort into other things other than hockey
2: well as management you know, gets younger and more progressive, they're more open to it. And there's actually scientific research that proves that if players have other hobbies or activities outside of hockey, they enhance their performance as a hockey player. So there's no excuse. You know, whenever I hear guys like, I, you know, I didn't finish my degree because I didn't have time. I was playing. Like I call BS on that one, you know, like I've I've lived a lifestyle. (laughs) There's, there's enough time in a day, you know, even if you're at the rink five hours a day, you still have plenty of time to get one or two classes done online or in person. So, you know, to me, uh, that's just an excuse and the fact that, Hey, I got to stay focused on hockey. If they looked at the big picture and how other guys have been even more successful in their hockey careers because they have other interests than, than, hockey. Uh, I, I think that again is just a, it's an old wise tale. You know, like I, I really think that as we progress towards the future and GM's, uh, you know, are more open-minded that uh, really that this is the future of all pro sports. You, know, you need to be multifaceted. You need to understand that you have a life outside the game. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, it goes back to the old, like, if you mind, I go see a player, whether, you know, junior or college, and I tell the coach, do you mind if I talk to him after the game? Well, I don't know. You know, we got we got another game tomorrow. And I'm like, well, what's he going to do when he plays pro and he has you know, 15 mics in, in his face and then he's got to get home to his two crying kids and his wife. Like, is he not going to play the next day? Like it, how, how are we helping them become a good pro athlete? And it makes no sense to me. So, you know, it, it, again, I, I understand some guys need extra focus and we all know those guys. that won't even talk to you on game day. And I get that, but you know, you, you need to have other stuff in your life besides the sport.
1: Well, it just makes sense too, like, guys who dwell on the game and think too much about it, sometimes that's a negative. And toF talked about that on a podcast recently. So like, if you can develop other interests and then on, on top of it, like you said, scientifically, like if you're working your brain in other ways, it's probably going to help you out on the ice that you're like, you know, working all these other neural pathways and firing different things in your brain. So then when you are thinking about hockey and, and doing hockey, <laughs> playing hockey, like it probably will. It just makes sense that that would, help your game too. So yeah, I'm glad you said that. Like, you know, and I, I'm not going to lie. There were, there were seasons where I, you know, did too much of work my ass off and practice into the gym, go home, nap, Netflix all day, go out to eat with the boys, repeat over and over and over again. And my brain, at one point I felt like my brain was turning to mush. So guys like, and kids playing juniors, like you need to go do something else. Like work your brain, find out what your other interests are, because it will only help you in hockey and hockey doesn't last forever. Well, it doesn't matter. doesn't so, matter if you're Wayne Gretzky, hockey is going to end. Like you, sooner or later, you're too old to play. So you're going to have to do things. Well, end. as you're
2: getting younger a little bit, you know, as the league gets younger guys, guys get pushed out earlier. And uh, that's a lot of life left to live when you're, when you're in your early thirties and, you don't know what you're going to do. So it's, it's really important for guys to start thinking about it while they're playing and uh, to start seriously making a plan because uh, they're going to need it.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's interesting that like this comes up because one of the one of my favorite books that I've read was actually Derek Jeter's autobiography, and he's he's Mm -hmm. the man. Like he's absolutely the man. And uh, I I had no idea. You think of Derek Jeter as like you know this playboy kind of like shortstop for the Yankees, but he's like as blue collar as they come when it comes to like his upbringing and what he believes in and stuff. And one of the stories that he told was when A Rod actually got uh, traded or signed with the Yankees, um, they would hang out with each other. and like A Rod would go over to Jeter's house, and they would get there, and all of a sudden A Rod would go over to the TV, and he'd just want to watch baseball, and he like that's all he thought about was baseball, like baseball. Baseball. He was like obsessed to the point where like he was kind of insane. And Jeter'd be like, dude, like what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like there's other stuff. Like we don't have to, we just got back from the park. Like let's like go out to yeah. lunch or something like that. And uh, I feel like there's, it's a lot healthier to be like Derek Jeter and have other interests than to, you know, to be like a rod where it's just like, you know, so totally focused like that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you hundred percent. It's the same concept as the best athletes are the multi-sport athletes. You know, your, your brain's a muscle and you need to, you need to use it in different ways to make sure that it stays sharp, you know, and, and uh, a lot of guys don't buy into that, but it's, it's proven over and over again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can be obsessed with something and still have balance, you know, like it's, it's correct, not like correct. one thing or the other, like you can be obsessed with hockey, but you, that means almost like when you're doing it, you're obsessed with it but then when you're not, yeah. you can drop it. And that's hard for people. Like I get that. It's even hard for me, but, um, no, but even even
2: those guys, like those kind of guys are usually the guys who are easy to knock off their game because they're so intense, you know? And I know you had Matthew Calderoni on, uh, one of your past shows and Matthew talks about building that alter ego and being able to shut it off and turn it on. That's really how you should live your life because Uh, if you're that same intense guy all the time, as soon as one thing goes the wrong way
1: or is not part of your routine, it throws you off completely. Well, and burnout too. Like you just, Mm -hmm. you can't be at a hundred percent all the time, 24 hours a day. I've tried. It doesn't work. I was going to say, isn't that you? (laughs) (laughs) But but I mean, when I'm not like doing things, you know, I got to take a nap. I can't go like work and then go out at night. Like I got to work and then I go home and die till the next day and do it over again. Like, you know, there's got to be some kind of balance that you have. Like you guys both said. Oh, yeah. Exactly.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, Al, you know, we got you on the podcast here and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you the tough question that I think a lot of people want us to ask you. um, And that is kind of like what's going on in the agent world right now. Like, it's gotten so young and, and so crazy and, and maybe not the agent world, maybe it's the agent slash advisor world and just kind of how has it changed since you first gotten into it and, and kind of where do you see it at right now? Um, because to be honest, like, and, and I'm not telling you something you don't already know, like I got 13 and 14 year olds coming up to me being like, hey, do I need an agent right now? Um, so if you can, just kind of tell us a little bit about how it's changed and, and kind of where the whole agent business is at right now.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm uh, this coming season will be my twentieth season being an agent. So I've been at it for a while, and I've seen uh, a few different CBAs and uh, a lot of uh, different, I guess, changes in our industry. And a lot of it is self-inflicted on the agency uh, side. Uh, You know, the the kids are being recruited way younger. Uh, There is no age limit to recruit uh, players, which, you know, I don't really agree with, but I firmly believe if there were rules against recruiting a certain age, agents would not follow them anyways. So, you know, like when you go to Scandinavia, those countries, uh, usually it's, it's going to be in the players year. They turn 16. When he's allowed to, uh, speak to agents and, and pick one, uh, in North America, you can sign an advisor or an agent at any age. And, uh, at the heart of the problem are the parents. And, uh, you know, the, the, the issue is you have all these parents that have FOMO uh, that are afraid their kids, you know, not going to, he's going to lose out somehow and he's not going to achieve his potential if they don't jump on something right away. And uh, it's sad and it's true and uh, it's getting worse and worse. You know, I see uh, a, a lot more sense of entitlement from players and parents. Uh, yeah you're talking to a kid who's coming out of bantam, and you know the first part of the conversation is a, like what are you gonna do for me like uh are you, gonna, are you gonna buy me sticks are you gonna pay for my training uh are you gonna and and to me like that part of the that world i I really despise because uh it's not sending the right message to our young players and uh and it's not it's, it's just getting worse because agents are doing it to each other you know and and you're you find yourself recruiting kids who at the start of the process, you thought were pretty good, but now are being uh, propped up on a pedestal by all these agents who want to get them, and then they start believing the hype, and then the kid can't live up to it, and that's usually where failure happens. You know, so it's uh, it, it's it's a little depressing. Uh, it's uh, very frustrating, and I think uh, the only solution is with uh, you know reasonable expectations and good parenting. Uh, I, I think, I don't think you're ever going to change the agents because it's a competitive world and they're all after the same players. So I think uh, for parents to be able to say, Hey, listen, I'm going to wait. Uh, I don't, we don't need a guy right now. I like to hear that, you know, like, a, uh, but most parents fall prey to the, a, hey, I got to get an agent because number one, uh, little Jimmy next door has one. And number two, it's a badge of honor. I can walk around the rink and say, I'm with the same guy who represents this guy and that guy. And, and that's, those are all the wrong reasons to pick an advisor or an agent. You know, we, we exist to help people process information and help them make the right decisions. That's like rule number one, you know, from, from an early age, obviously as your career progresses, we do more than that. But, you know, initially when you engage somebody, that's why you're engaging them. And uh, the parents that do it for the wrong reasons, it usually, the the truth usually shines through, you know, like either the kid. Gets burnt out, quits hockey, or um, or the they leave the agent for somebody else because it's not going the way they want it to go. Uh, it's yeah, it, it it it's chock full of issues because it happens too early. That's the issue.
0: So basically, what you're saying is the agent business is very similar to college hockey right now. That's uh, that's kind of what I'm hearing. <laughs> it,
2: it is. You know what? Like everybody is. Uh, and, and hey, I. I'm no different than anybody else if I don't talk to kids early I'm probably not going to get them uh, but uh, it, it is a very self-serving world uh, all of the competitive sports whether it's major junior college uh, or pro or the agency world uh, everybody's out to do their job and you know and get as many good players as they can you know that's just the reality of it and uh, college hockey right now I saw that tweet yesterday about Michigan having, was it 16 commits coming in and only two guys are leaving. And, you know, I don't even know if that's correct or not. So I don't want to throw Michigan under the bus there, but uh, it it is, you know, it is become a very common problem where uh, if, you know, if uh, I'm not going to get the kid, I hope he doesn't go to the other guy. And it's, uh, it gets to be very, uh, in a way it's a little bit sickening, you know,
0: Well, you alluded to it earlier, and and I want to hammer this point home, but I think one of the biggest, you know, things that is wrong and and is really hard for kids, you know, growing up and and being recruited at such a young age is, you know, they're being told how good they are at such a young age now by so many different people that, like, they don't understand that and they they don't hit that adversity that – pretty much every person who's ever been successful has had. So, you know, they, they've been told how good they are, being told how good they are, being told how good they are. You know, then when they have to face adversity, they get cut for the first time or they get, you know, they don't get make a team or, you know, things like that. They get benched or yelled at by the coach. And like all of a sudden, they, now they don't know how to handle it. <laughs> so that's – yeah. do, do you feel like that is kind of like a huge thing? I mean, because at the end of the day, this is all about – like hockey development and doing what's best for the kids. So, you know, yeah, all I mean, this recruiting I, stuff, as it's, a society,
2: it's tough. I, I think, I think we really fail in the fact that, and I have two kids, they're grown now, but we, we fail as a society by not letting our kids fail enough. That's the issue. Everyone's so afraid of their kid not succeeding that they impede their development. Because if you think back, you know, throughout your life or my life or Jeff, your life, like, When have you learned the most? It's not when you've had success. It's not when you've won a championship. It's usually when you've had a major failure. That's when you really take a hard look at what you did and why it happened. And, and you grow from that, you know, but if you, if you put all the moments you failed in your life against all the moments that you've had success, you would find that you've learned a lot more from your failures and, and parents just don't want to let themselves do that. It's, I don't know why that is, but that that's become a major issue.
1: Well, I think another big issue. Toph said just now, uh, a minute ago, that that kids now that are the really good ones, or or even the good ones, are being told all the time how good they are. And you know, th- then it's on social media, and it's like you said, they get a, an agent or an advisor, and then they're out there telling everyone how good they are because they're trying to sell their client, which is their job. And then maybe the kid can't reach the hype. I mean, I have a kid who I absolutely love to death who just committed to uh, a college and he's a young guy. And I just made a joke to him the other day, like, well, my old, my pros get to choose the first time of workouts a day. Then my college guys, then my junior guys, then my midget majors. And it kind of goes downhill. You're younger. Like you're on the bottom of the totem pole. You're going to get a later time. And he's like, well, I'm a college guy. I'm like, no, you're not. You're not even close to a college guy. And he's like, well, I'm committed. I'm like, that doesn't mean shit to me. Like, yes, I'm extremely happy for you. And it's amazing. But, the difference that you are four years away from being in college at the minimum. So you haven't done anything yet. Like, yes, what you did, you, you committing is amazing. However, there is a lot of things that can happen in the next four, five, six years. And a lot of guys that could get better or injuries or whatever. So like, he's not a kid who's like, head's too big. He was just making a joke back to me, but you know, I kind of had to put him in his place and be like, Hey, you got a lot of work to do, and he knows that. But you know, it's it. Other kids, I think, probably do think that way. Oh, I'm sweet. I committed. Like, but look you, at me. You're right. Yeah. You know, and and, and then maybe they don't it's work like as hard. Those
2: same families that chase the agents around the rink, yeah. and want their kid to play level up all the time. It, it's the same people, you know. And at the end of the day, you're doing a disservice to your kid. You know, like I, I have this conversation a lot with, with families and, and players about, hey, should I play a level up or should I stay at my level? And my consistent advice there is until you are a really good player, if not the best player at your level, why would you move up? Because you're taking ice time away from you. You're taking uh, puck touches away from yourself. Why don't you stay at the level you're at, handle the puck a lot more, get better, and then move on? But we live in this world where like everybody is like, oh, no, no, I got to play a level two up just to prove to everybody how good I am. And all you're doing is impeding your development, you know, and, and and people don't see that like for what it is because they get the parent glasses on. But at the end of the day, you're, you're there to get better every day. You're going to get to a level where everybody's good. And that level is either going to be junior college or pro, depending on how good you are. And then once you get to that level, the only thing that's going to separate you is going to be your character, and what's between your two ears, and that's it. And and people will you know will always be like, oh, you know, like what's the difference between this level and that level? You get to the NHL, and you look at guys playing on the fourth line; uh, those guys were all the top players in college hockey, and junior hockey. But now they're playing a defensive role because that's who they are. That's who their identity is as, as a pro player. And you know, the the, the issue is that uh, parents. Always want to push the envelope, development-wise, and that's that's where you create holes in your game. That's where you become lesser of a player because you're you're progressing too quickly. And I don't know if you guys agree with that, but you know that's that's always what I've believed in the last four years I've been in hockey.
1: No, oh, I mean I I definitely agree with that. And, and something fun of you said, like the fourth line players in the NHL are still nasty. Like when I was with Boston and I'm playing in, in, preseason games, Sean Thornton, uh, I played on Sean Thornton's line and Steve Beijing and before I had been on the ice with Sean Thornton, like in my head, I'm like, well, he's a heavyweight fighter. Like he's a goon more or less, you know? Right. A- and I get out there and the guy's got the sickest hands ever in practice. He's ripping every shot bar down. And I was like, Holy shit, this is their fighter. Like what? This guy is so nasty. And if you go back and look at his AHL numbers, there were years where he put up some pretty good numbers. So, you know, what you said, like those margins, they get smaller and smaller. But something that I want to ask you, because you just said, you know, you'll tell some kids like, hey, it's better to stay at your level and take get more puck touches and things like that. Are there ever any of your clients and you don't have to name them where maybe an NHL team wants to sign them? Or they're drafted to an NHL team and the team wants them to leave early college, you know, juniors, whatever. Are there ever guys where you're like, you know what, I think you need another year of wherever you are. Or are you like, you know, let's, let's get the money. Is it a case by case basis? Kind of, how do you, how it's, do you go about it's, that? It's, it's a case by case basis. And every year there's a couple.
2: And, um, you know, the, the reality of it is, uh, you rarely see a guy making a mistake staying an extra year at college. You know, you rarely see a guy, uh, leaving too, like leaving too early or I'm sorry, leaving too late. You often see a guy leaving too early and making a mistake because he's not ready. And that's the, that's the weird part of our job where, uh, you have to be honest, but not get fired. (laughs) So, (laughs) so you, you, you have to tell guys what the reality is. And sometimes they don't want to hear it. And you know what? Sometimes you do get fired. I remember I got fired uh, by a guy a long time ago that was at Maine uh, who was going to leave to sign in the NHL. And I told him he wasn't ready and um, he fired me. And then uh, another agent told him, no, no, you should sign. He signed and almost wrecked his career. It It took him almost two years to get to the NHL, ended up having a good NHL career, but really the right thing for that kid was to stay in school. And he just, He didn't want to hear it, you know, and that's, those are the tough decisions that we have to make and and the tough conversations we have to have. But uh, you know, we need to stay true to ourselves as, as you know, people and trying to be a good person. And I'm not going to tell a kid to leave if I don't think he's ready. I I think it's wrong. Uh, Maybe some other guys would, but to me, like, I don't, I don't need the player that badly to have to lie to him. You know, if I know that it's going to hurt his career, why would I tell him to leave? It makes no sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and with that, I want to change gears a little bit to one of the players who certainly had a lot of success at uh, at a young age um, in the NHL, and that's Nico Heischer, who was the first overall draft pick uh, in the draft a couple of years ago. Um, honestly, like, what what's that like being the agent on draft day of a guy like Nico Heischer? Um, that, that must have been just an incredible experience for, for obviously him and his family, but for you as well.
2: Yeah, it was, I mean, uh, that was uh, one of those moments you never forget, you know, in, in, in the career of an agent, because that was our first pick first overall. And we actually did not know until like two minutes before, uh, because it was either going to be Philly or New Jersey. And uh, Ray Shiro, you know, wouldn't uh, divulge yet what they were thinking. And I don't know that they knew until a few hours before. So uh, it was uh, a great experience, very nerve wracking that was the only year during the draft where they did the whole green room thing where we're sitting behind the screen with the family and everybody is nervous. And and that was a one and done. And they never did that again because I don't know if you remember, but uh, they had um, what's his name that got drafted by St. Louis with the 31st pick. And he was the last pick of the first. And I felt so bad for that kid because he was back there by himself with his family and all the other tables had gone. And, um, uh, Clint Costin, and then Costin was the last pick. So I think that's why they're like, we're never doing this again. Cause you could see the kids sweating and you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> dra- draft day is a, uh, a very humbling day for, for many exciting day for others and frustrating day for agents, because there's always really good stuff that happens and always really bad stuff that happens. And there's always uh, excited families and disappointed families. and You feel every gamut of emotion uh, on that day. And it's a, uh, it's, it's very draining.
0: Oh, I can, uh, I can imagine so. And, and I did a little digging before, uh, before this podcast, and I heard there's a pretty funny story about you trying, uh, trying to film uh, with your phone, Nico, and his reaction and, and getting caught doing that while you guys were trying to figure out if he was getting drafted first overall. So um, <laughs> if, you, if you can kind of elaborate on that story and how funny it was.
2: Well, my, uh, so my, my Swiss partner, uh, Gaetan was who, uh, you know, who does all of the stuff in Switzerland was sitting next to me and Gaetan's here, your, your typical Swiss French guy, very emotional. So, uh, I heard from the media like two minutes before that Nico was going to get picked that he was going to go first. So I, I looked at, to, to Gaetan. I'm like, Hey, like he's going first, but don't say anything. And I see like tears streaming down his face. So I'm like, come on, buddy, don't give it up. Like, you know, <laughs> and he, he, he can't contain himself. So I'm, I'm trying to film the reaction at the same time. And, uh, and you know, by that time, as soon as they saw him, the family kind of figured it out. So it was good in a way because it got the kid ready for it. Uh, but it was bad in a way because it kind of, you know, it, it killed the moment a little bit because he, he, he didn't, you know, he, he knew it before his name got called out.
1: So, so he's a terrible poker player. Gitana is. (laughs) Oh my God. Horrible, horrible poker player. Yes. (laughs) Awesome.
0: That's great. Well, uh, I know a couple of us got to get going here pretty soon, but before we end it, you know, the last question that I wanted to ask you, Al is, you know, in your line of work, um, you're making people's dreams come true and, and you're setting people up for the rest of their lives financially, um, which has to be a, a really, really cool feeling um, if if you can, is there one story that kind of sticks out to you? Maybe just an unbelievable kid or or family, um, that, you know, you were able to provide them with that kind of, that kind of day where they were signing a big contract or maybe even not signing a big contract. Maybe it was just their first contract, but they came from, from nothing. Or is there, is there any of the kids that you've worked with that is just kind of special to you when they were able to sign a contract?
2: Well to me like you know the the the, the Rippin story is is a, is a one close to my heart just because Rick you know had to deal with so many issues while he played and uh and we were there for for the whole you know the whole time and and that's uh, that that was a tough one uh with uh you know and then I have other players like Kyle Brodziak who has been with me for the the whole 20 years you know like uh, so Kyle uh, came on as a 16 year old in in junior and, uh, you know, he went through the draft, got married, uh, he's had his kids and now he's still playing. Like to me, those are, those are special events because you, you just kind of see these guys transform, They're, you know, their, their whole life, they, they go from being kids to being men, to being dads, to retiring. And, and now, you know, now talking about life after hockey and what are you going to do? And, uh, so you, you kind of become part of the family. Uh, you know, I, I don't have like one specific guy that kind of stands out. I mean, obviously, uh, I've had hundreds of clients over the years and I guess that the the best part of my job is just seeing them succeed and seeing them, you know, become who they're going to become, but even the guys who don't turn into NHL players, you know, uh, I, I know uh, we've had a lot of clients who are really successful businessmen, uh, who are, you know, have become really good people throughout the process. And then the process has made them who they are. So to me, that's probably the best part is just seeing the transformation, uh, you know, from the time these guys are, you know, 15, 16 till they're 35 uh, as to who they become. And I would tell you that hockey players are the best people. Like uh, 99% of the time, I, you know, I'm proud of, of who these guys become, whether they make it or not.
0: Yeah, Very cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And just real quick too, um I mean that's uh, a huge part of the, the the greatness of our jobs as college hockey coaches is, you know, you recruit kids, let's say at 16, they come in when they're 18, you're a part of their lives for maybe six, seven, eight years. And so you do get to see them grow up. Um, you get to see them go through the ups and the downs and how they deal with them and, and get to know their families. And, you know, there's kids that, you know, they come in as a freshman and, and they're shy and they won't look you in the eye. And, you know, it's kind of put their head down and just go to work and they leave and they're giving you hugs and they're, you know, these men that, uh, that leave. So I, I, can certainly, uh, sympathize with, with that because that was one of the best parts of my job coaching at Cornell was just, you know, seeing the kids come in as, as kind of young boys and immature, and then just leaving ready to conquer the world. So, um, I know that you guys have a huge part in that and, uh, it's, it's certainly a huge part of it.
2: It is. And, uh, it, like that's probably the most rewarding part, it, honestly, like uh, out of all the, the, the stuff that we do, is, uh, you know, yes. You know, when they, when their dreams come true, it makes them, uh, ecstatic and the family ecstatic and they're very thankful. But when things don't really work out and you're there and you, you help them through it and they become something even better, uh, that's almost as good as their dream coming true.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. Now, let, let me ask you this. Cause this is a question that I really wanted to ask. Uh, cause, cause obviously Toph and I know this, but you know, there's a lot of young parents, young kids that listen to this podcast. Um, what does an agent do? <laughs> I know that's
0: like, so that's like, what so what kind rough. of question is that?
1: You know what? I, I do
2: podcasts so, all day long. That's all I do. I just talk, no. Oh. it's so up, <laughs> you wouldn't believe you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe no, how many it, parents okay, well, it, ask me a,
1: that it's question. A good
2: question. So, you know. It's a good question. And we actually have a career map uh, for our clients as to what should be happening at every stage, you know, from 14 to 18, 18 to 22, 22 to 27, and then 27 plus. And then we, we map it out, you know, basically, you know, we get involved with development, uh, mental strength training, uh, one-on-one videos, skills training that's on the hockey side. You know, then you do the first contract. Then you talk about disability insurance Then you set up their banking. You explain to them what credit is, get them their first credit card, open their first bank account, help them get their first car, explain to them what a mortgage is, help them get their first mortgage. Uh, talk to them about a prenup, which is always an interesting one. Uh, You know, then they have kids and you start talking about life insurance, about setting money aside for college. We are involved in every step of the way from the time that they sign with us until until they're gone. Even after they're gone, we're still talking to them about this stuff.
1: That's great. And I I think that, people needed to hear that because people always ask me what does an agent do and i'll tell you good agents will do way more like the the things you just listed i know not all agents do that um so the good agents do way more they care way more and subsequently their players have a better quality of life because their agent is helping them bad agents which i know quite a few they don't do half of the things that al just said him and his company do so i mean you know i i know al personally and i don't want to make this a uh uh a commercial for RSGL's company but there no, is a difference a <laughs> I yeah, was going to say you kind of are <laughs> well, what, what I'm saying is there is a difference between good agents and bad agents and agents that care and, and adv- advisors and agents that care and ones that are literally in it just for the numbers and for the money so people that are out there and you are shopping around and you're looking like that's a good question what is it, it is. you do here because not all of them <laughs> do the same amount of things like rsg does so that's why i wanted to ask that
2: yeah no that's a good question well much appreciate your time guys and uh if uh you need if you have any other questions or you know stuff that you want to talk about let me know for sure
0: awesome Awesome. uh thanks al for coming on this was great and uh best of luck with the playoffs with the guys that you have in the playoffs still and uh safe travels i'm sure you'll be traveling around quite a bit over the next couple months
2: All right. Thanks, guys. Go Crimson. All
0: right. (laughs) (laughs) All All
2: right. Take care, guys. Have a good day.